I've been looking at this, uh, what we're calling the gospel, according to Elisha. You know, a lot of folks don't think that the gospel is really contained in the Old Testament. I think, personally, and I would hope that you would, would consider this, that the gospel is most fully contained in the, New Testament, in, the, in the Old Testament, and that the New Testament simply looks back at the Old Testament and explains what all that stuff was about. What was all those stories, those narratives, those prayers, those apocalyptic visions, what was that all pointing to? And when you do that, things start to come into focus and start to make sense. And I realize, I'm the first to admit, the Bible can be very daunting. It's a big book and lots of information. But there are some keys that you need to know. And once you see those keys, and they're not esoteric, they're not these Gnostic type of things where only a few people know. Anyone can know them. It's just a matter of looking and seeing what the Scripture actually says about itself. And that's what we've attempted to do here over these past few weeks. So I invite you to turn in your Scriptures uh, to... uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to look at this passage again this morning from 2 Kings, the life of Elisha, the prophet who was the protege of the great prophet Elijah. And uh, we're going to look at uh, one particular narrative, and that is the horses of chariots of fire that surrounded Elisha and uh, protected him against the army of Syria that was coming to kill him. Uh, So we'll pick up reading in verse 8. It's printed in your bulletin. If you don't have the Scriptures with you, you can read it there. And so now I would invite you to uh, hear God's Word. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But when the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord. O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is that I may seize, send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him, them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. 
And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance to the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, there were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you would have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went away to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. These narratives, uh, I know, can be... Uh, well, first of all, let me say this. They are very, very well written. And they are very, uh, very interesting. And you can get caught up in the story and think, wow, these are like myths, these are like fables. But there's a lot more to these stories uh, than what we know. And my job is to kind of bring clarity. I mean, what is going on? We've looked at, at all of these stories of Elisha, not all of them, but I've picked a few that I think are pertinent to the kingdom of God and how God expands His kingdom, what He's doing in the world. And these miracles can become very uh, confusing, if you will. The stories are great, but they can become mythologized. We can pretend, well, those are just, those are just stories. They're not really, they don't have a lot of... of uh, Meaning, they just have, uh, uh, you know, they're just interesting. They're just miracle stories. But what is the real application behind them? I mean, when you read a story like we did a few weeks ago about the she-bears, these she-bears come out of the forest and maul 43 children, 43 young boys, who were mocking the prophet. And you go, what the heck's going on with that? And then the next week, uh, we looked at Naaman the Syrian. Of course, we all like that story because it's so cool. You know, this enemy gets cleansed of leprosy and all that. And today we see that there's an army surrounding the prophet and there's an other army, another army there protecting the prophet that is unseen. Another miracle. What are these miracles? Well, let me, let me recap and explain again what is going on with miracles. You know, Christianity and uh, uh, particularly in our day and age, but going back throughout the history of Christianity, the church has been enamored with the miraculous. In fact, you can go all over the world today and go to shrines and you have to pay money and all kinds of stuff to get in and see the, the shrine. If you touch a certain rock or if you, if you kneel at a certain place in a grotto, you will get healed. And there's all this talk of miracles. And of course, if you watch late night Christian television and, we, and if you do, fill out that form 
and say, I do watch Christian television at night, late at night, uh, and we will be praying for you. <laughs> I promise you, the session, we'll be on our knees asking God to deliver you from that. Uh, Christian TV, you see the crazy, I mean, crazy stuff. And what's interesting is, they have, they have actually documented, you know, the very famous evangelist, healing evangelist, Benny Hinn, many of you know who he is. He was asked to send the sixth best, most, most well-documented miracles that had ever happened in his crusades. And he, sure, sure, and he sent the very best six that he could get together out of thousands really tens of thousands of people over the course of his, his ministry who they claim were healed. And an independent investigative team checked, and guess how many of those people were actually healed? Guess. The answer is zero. Nobody was healed. In fact, a lot of the people they interviewed were dead. Now, I'm not telling you that miracles don't happen. They do happen. And many of you have had miraculous things happen in your life. I have. But what we tend to do is we make everything a miracle. Oh, I prayed and got a job. That's a miracle. No, you got a job. Oh, you should have seen I was there with the birth of my children. It was a miracle. No, it happens all the time. Miracles by their very nature are rare. And in Scripture, you've got 1,500 plus years of Scripture in the Old Testament and another 2,000 years in the New. And very few miracles. Very few. We seem to get caught up in the miraculous. And what I told you is miracles, listen, miracles, are they have a purpose. They are signs and they point to something else they point to something other than themselves we our human nature we get caught up in the miracle we're not looking at what they point to what are they pointing to and so there are basically five periods of time in biblical history when there is a an episodic occurrence of miracles now there are Miracles here and there that are sporadic. You have, uh, I read one commentator and he was saying, uh, debating whether or not creation was a miracle. Personally, I don't think creation was a miracle. Uh, another commentator was wondering whether or not Sarah and Abraham having a child in their old age was a miracle. And, and uh, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But at Jonah and the whale, you know, Jonah, swa- or, uh, Jonah didn't swallow the whale. Uh, that's, that's my version of Scripture. <laughs> now, the whale swallows Jonah, or whatever he was, a fish. We don't know what he was. Was that a miracle? Well, probably. But they're episodic. Uh, or they're uh, sporadic. The episodes are very... There's only a few. And they occur over 1,500 years. Moses, this cycle of miracles between the prophets Elijah and Elisha, there's a few miracles that occurred during the exile, specifically the preservation of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there is the ministry of Jesus, which was full of miracles. Do you know that Jesus is the only one who cast out demons in the Bible? 
The only one that we know that directly confronted Satan. Amazing. And then, of course, the apostolic age, uh, which was full of miracles, but only for a brief time. They did eventually cease. Now, they ceased, but not altogether. But the episode ceased. The episodic, day after day after day, miracle, miracle, miracle. Then it slowly, slowly phased out. And as I've said, there have been others. And now we have this amazing miracle of the the uh, armies of Syria coming to attack the prophet Elijah at Dothan. And there's no way he can escape. And he tells his servant, those that are with us are more. And then he asks the Lord to open the servant's eyes. And he does. And he sees an army, vast army, surrounding Elisha, protecting him. An amazing miracle. And so we're going to look at... Uh, Basically, what is going on with these miracles? Miracles, finally, let me say this last thing and then we'll move on. Miracles are to create. Miracles are to preserve. Miracles are to restore. Like restoring the water in Jericho with throwing salt into it and all that with a new bowl. I mean, what was going on? We don't know. How does salt, have any of you drank salt water? Yikes. That's not how you purify salt or purify water. But salt fixes the water. Amazing. They're creative. They're preservation. They are restorative. They are redeeming. That's what they're for. And so this morning, here's our outline very quickly. We're going to look at the God who sees. The God who sees. Secondly, people who don't see. God who sees. People who don't see. And finally, What does it mean to be stricken? But not with blindness. Stricken with sight. See, I think, and what I'm going to hopefully convey to you is that the blindness is not what's going on. It's the sight that is the key to understanding this miracle. So let's go. Let's look at it. I think you're going to enjoy this. I did immensely. I love studying the prophets. I love studying the Old Testament. I would probably never go into the New Testament unless I had to because I love it so much. But uh, after Easter, we will start the book of James. Not too excited about that? Okay. What would you like to do after that? <laughs> no, never mind. All right, let's go. Let's look at this. The God who sees. Look at verse 8, the very start. The king of Syria is warring with Israel, and he's making his war plans. Those of you that are in the military, you know, you've got a plan. You don't just go out and do stuff. He's planning, and he's saying, go and put my troops, deploy my troops to this spot, and this is, we're going to ambush Israel. We're going to surprise them. We're going to scare them to death. We're going to kill them. We're going to do this. Go put some here. Go put some there. You know, deploy the troops. And Elisha is in Dothan, and he's in his world, whatever that is, and God is telling him, hey, the king of Syria is going to put his troops over here, and he's going to put these things over there, and he's got this going on over here. And so the prophet sends a message to the king of Israel and says, hey, don't go over there, and don't go over there, and be careful of this, you know, because the king of Syria is doing this and this and this. And it vexes the king of Syria every time his plans are known. And he comes and he goes to his, his people and he says, okay, which one of you, we're going to start torturing you, we're going to be waterboarding some of you, 
to find out who is for our enemy. And the servants say, it's not us. It's not us. There's a prophet in Israel and he knows, listen to this, he knows what's going on in your bedroom. It's kind of comical. That must have been very disconcerting for the king of Syria. I mean, you really? (laughs) I mean, what, has he got a bug in here or what? You know, it's this high tech, you know. No, he sees it. It's a euphemism for he knows what you're doing. He knows what's going on in your closest, most intimate life. You see, this is why this is so cool. Listen, this is what just jazzes me up. You don't understand any of this until you start studying the ancient Near East and finding out what kind of gods they had. In fact, not only the ancient Near East gods, the Grecian gods, the Roman gods, any gods anywhere in the whole world were very capricious. Every god, regardless of the religion, is they're all made in the image of man. Zeus and Jupiter, oh, they're the same. Mercury. You know, Aphrodite, they're all made in the... And they all have human emotions and they're all very frail. In fact, if you read the narratives going from Greek all the way ancient Near East, doesn't matter where you go, find out about these gods and they were all very capricious, very human. In fact, they were so human uh, that they were so self-centered. They were all interested in their own thing, their own rivalries. In fact, the bale cycle of weather and all that, I've explained that to you early on. That was all about battles that were going on in the unseen world and they couldn't care less what happened to human beings. And human beings were caught up in their crazy world. There was drought and bad weather and all this. So human beings said, we've got to find some way to control these gods so they would sacrifice and they would kill things and they would even kill their own children and they would do anything they had to because the, the world of the gods of the ancient Near East was chaotic. Kind of like our federal government. It was chaotic. You didn't know what was going to happen next. One minute they're for you. One minute they're against you. And they really don't care about you. They're just all caught up in their own world. And into this comes the God of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Into this world, the Egyptian gods were very capricious. And into that world, Moses writes a narrative, Genesis chapter 1, and he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You know the story. And then he says this amazing thing. And he created man from the dust of the ground, out of the dust. In His own image. That was unknown in the ancient world. Yes, the gods had created. Yes, they used clay, dirt, to create. But they took that clay. You need to understand this. All the narratives, the ancient East Near East narratives are all the same. They took the clay. They mixed it with the blood of a demon. And they created man for this purpose only. To be their slaves. To be their toys. To be their minions. To do their bidding. To work. Because work was below the gods. The gods didn't work. They stayed up in their heavenly whatever and had their rivalries and all of their stuff. You all know Greek mythology and all that. All that. And we'll put people on the earth to be our slaves and do our work. 
And God Almighty, the real God, comes in and he says to the whole world, I'm making man, but not a slave, in my image. Not to slave, to live, listen, in paradise. To live in the beauty of the creation, to make it a temple, to make it glorious, to take the garden and spread it out to the whole world and fill the world with my image. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is the message of Elijah. This is the message of Elisha. This was the message of Jesus. The biblical God, listen, He is active. He knows the heart. He cares. He is so intimately in love with the king of Israel, who, by the way, was a scoundrel. This king, the son of Ahab, a horrible scoundrel. A sinner beyond anything you can imagine. And yet God is being kind to this king of Israel. He knows he loves his people. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks this question. What is God's providence? What is God's providence? Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul used to say, this little statement is the separation... You can argue with Dr. Sproul if you want to. I wouldn't. Because it would require that you die and go to heaven. But, I think he's absolutely right. What is God's providence? What do we mean by providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Now what He means by that is not that we are puppets on a string and that He's just down there dangling, you know, and just doing this and that you're just, you know, kind of going along. That is not what the Westminster Confession is saying. What it is saying is that this God is different than any other God. He is intimately involved in people's lives and you can be sure You can be sure that nothing comes into your life except first that it filters through His hands. Now I know, personally, and I know many of you have suffered with incredibly bad things in your life. And the only you can either go with it and say, I don't know why this is happening, how could God be so mean to me? Or you could go, I don't know what's happening, but I know He loves me. And whether I live or whether I die, I am His. Amen? That's it! Yeah, things get lousy. Sometimes life is horrible. Sometimes it's unfair. Sometimes students get murdered for no good reason. In a school where they should be safe. Sometimes people are enslaved simply because of the color of their skin. Sometimes people are are discriminated against simply because of their gender or their sexual orientation. How dare we? I'm not saying those things are okay. I'm not saying that homosexuality is okay. But how dare we proclaim to the world that we have We have settled all these issues. How dare we? 
The Bible has something to say. Do you trust the Scriptures? Will you trust them? Will you trust Him? And often we don't. The biblical God is at work. You know, I've told you this before and I'll say it again. When we look around at people's lives and you see something in someone's life that's not right, and you know the Bible teaches that thing is sin. Are you tracking with me? Is everyone tracking? You're looking at their life and you know that thing doesn't agree. That's not right. They're not doing what's right. That's sinful. What would happen if you just took a snapshot of that moment and judged everything else on that moment? What would happen? Anyone want to volunteer? Would any of us like to have a snapshot taken of that moment in our life and say, okay, that's who we are? You know, I've made no bones about my life. If someone had done that to me, they could have taken a hundred snapshots. They could have taken a thousand snapshots. And it wouldn't have shown them what I am today. Yes? So before we judge the world, God is preserving and governing. We don't know. Madi V and I had a therapist, and I've told you we had lots of counseling. A therapist told us, and I had, in fact, this morning, early this morning when we were up talking, she and I were talking about this very thing. This wonderful therapist told us nobody, listen, nobody knows what another, and this is not a Christian lady, or not, she is, I think she's a Christian. She's a Roman Catholic. And some of you probably don't believe Roman Catholics can be saved, but let me tell you something. There's going to be more of them than, more, than the Presbyterians. She told us, no one knows what another person's recovery looks like. You with me? Nobody knows what that looks like. And so when we look around and we see these things going on in our life, remember this, there is an unseen world an unseen track. I don't know your story. Tonight you'll hear a little bit of mine. If you come to our house at 6.30, you'll hear a little bit. And if you had judged us just based on those few things, what would, you, would, you would run from this room. You wouldn't want to listen to me. But if you wait, if you let, if you see the whole picture, what will you see? And what Elisha is saying is you will see the glory of God. Do you believe that? Christ the King. Do you believe that? No? Well, then I'm sorry for you. I'm telling you that. If you're not willing to look at your life and say, wow, I am on a journey, who knows where it'll go? Who knows where I'm at? That's why we were told not to judge other people. God's work of preserving and governing His creature. His creation, it's at work. Let us not draw a judgment and say, oh my God, the army of the enemy is here, we've lost. Not yet. God sees, He preserves, and He governs. Yes? What about people that don't? 
That's what I've been describing. Look what the king of Syria says. Go and see. Notice that he's over and over again. He is using a word. Go and see. Behold. There's all these words about sight. Pay attention to that. Go and see. Seize him. Horses and chariots. A great army go. They surround the city. And the servant arises. This is verse 13 following. The servant arises in the morning and behold. Okay, again, the eyes come open. Army, horses, chariots. The Bible's not denying that the army of the enemy was there. What shall we do? Don't be afraid, Elisha says to his servant. Those who are with us are more. And he says, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Behold. Again, another word. Sight. The mountain full of horses, chariots of fire. You remember miracles are redemptive. Why did the servant need to see the army that was protecting them? That was preserving them? That was governing the affairs? Why do you need to come to church and be reminded that even though you're looking out at the world around you and things are not as they should be, right? Things are not right. Even in our life, things are not right. Even in our children, sometimes things are not. Even in our spouse, sometimes things are not. Even in our own body, things can be going haywire. With our job, with a loved one, it could be, you get the picture. Even though you know things are not right, and you're telling them, this is not right, you need to repent, believe the gospel, come to Jesus, whatever it is, pray, do whatever, even though they're not right, what we're being told and what Elisha, the gospel of Elisha is saying, that you can't go by just that, you can't, you can't just go by what you can see, or feel, or touch, or taste, or smell. Because that's only a snapshot. We don't know what that person's life is going to look like in six months from now. And Elisha prayed and said, Open this servant's eyes, my, my servant, my protege here, my young prophet. And he does, and what does he see? He sees God's army They're protecting them. And so, understand this. I don't know where you're... Look, I don't know. This is Palm Sunday. I don't know where your life is right now. But know this. There is an army, chariots, fire, horses, God, and at the head, lead on, O King Eternal, At its head, a Savior who loves you and cares for you. And nothing can separate you from His hand. Not the army of Syria. Not cancer. Not divorce. Not bad job. Not windy days in El Paso. Nothing. Nothing. And he's not saying anything's going to change immediately. What he's saying is, will you trust me? Will you look at the unseen? Will you cast your gaze outside this world to another world? Because you're going to look at something. Yes, you're going to look at something. And he's saying, look at me. 
Ground yourself in that. Then look at everything else through those glasses, through that filter. And this is what the third point is all about. Being stricken with sight. Let me finish quickly here. Look at verses 18. This is what we call an eruption. Write this down. One of the best words I ever learned from Dr. Walke. I love this word. You know, word I couldn't even find it in the dictionary. It's in there, but I couldn't find it without looking hard. Eruption. I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. Not eruption. Not like a volcano. I've told you about it before. Volcanoes erupt. God erupts. I-R-R. He enters in. He comes into the world. He crashes in. He comes into Tohu Vabohu, to the chaos and the void of Genesis 1. The world is in chaos and, and there's formlessness and void and, and, and chaotic creation. World out there. And He comes in and He says, Light be. And He brings order to chaos. He stills the sea, which was in the ancient Near East where the demons lived, in the oceans, in the depths, in the dark. They were uncontrollable. They couldn't control the weather. And He comes in and He controls it by His Word. That's why when Jesus calmed the storm, came and woke Him up, got Him up in the bed, look, we're perishing, Lord. He says, peace be still. The water immediately becomes quiet and they, they fall down. They're no longer scared of the storm. They look, what kind of man is this? What is this? Even the winds and the sea obey Him. Look at what it says. They approach. In other words, they attack. They're going to come get Elisha. And he prays and he says to strike them with blindness. And God strikes them with blindness. He opens the eye of the servant, but he strikes this army with blindness. To what end? He leads them to the king of Samaria, this Israelite king who was, by all accounts, very evil. And when he got there, the king says to Elisha, Shall I strike? Shall I kill my enemies? Shall I destroy them? You brought them to me. They can't even see. We can wipe them out. And Elisha says, Would you really? Would you really kill your enemy? No. Set before them bread and water. Feed them and send them back to the king of Syria. Why? We wouldn't do that, right? I mean, really? This is so counterintuitive. When you read it, you go, what is going on? I'll give it to you just very plain. Believe it or not, you don't have to. Grace, mercy, and love. Grace, mercy, and love redeems, whenever it is extended, especially to an enemy, it redeems. I want to see a show of hands. I know that Presbyterians are uncomfortable raising their hands because, I don't know, there's just something about our anatomy, right? <laughs> but, but just for a second, honestly, if you were an enemy of God, And He loved you 
into this building, into this place, this day, with His raw, pure, undefiled grace, love, and mercy. He took you and He brought you out of your blindness and dragged you into the kingdom of God. Would you raise your hand? Would you? I know it's hard. I'm sorry for all of you. And if He didn't, Know this, you won't have any other way. Only His grace, only His love can change a heart. Elisha's giving us the gospel. They prepared a feast. Jesus said this, you've heard it said, love your uh, neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Listen. So that you may be sons, daughters of your Father in heaven. Why? Because He makes His Son rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is being eminently reasonably saying, look, if God is good to you, And all those people out there that don't like Him, doesn't it just make sense that we should love and be kind to one another? Shouldn't we be loving our enemies? I mean, really? And then He goes on. If if that wasn't the stake in the heart, He goes on and goes all the way and puts to death any pretense about what it means to really and truly be a Christian and live in this world for other people, especially your enemies. He sends His reign on the just and the unjust. Here it is, folks. If you love those that love you, what thanks do you have Even the tax collectors do that. This whole world, folks, runs by, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. No religion in the world, none, not one, says me for you. I will give my life for you. But you don't know. If I do that, they'll just walk all over me. And Jesus said, do it. Will you trust me? Will you? And most of us say, I'm not going that far. But they might hurt me. They might do something to They might crucify me. And Jesus says, if you don't take your cross up and follow me, what do you think that's all about, folks? That's what it's all about. The Gospel... Let me finish with this. The gospel means this. That you and I have been stricken not with blindness, but with sight. Have you been stricken with sight? Do you see that you were welcomed into God's holy presence not by anything that you did, but simply out of pure, raw, Grace, furious love that crashes, that erupts into this world, into a manger, 
into a, 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 a feeding stall, into a place that was uncommodious, that was unpretty, that was ugly. Do you see Him coming into Nazareth, a despised place, a despised city, being a man who was of a questionable birth? Oh, we're not too sure who His father is. We know who His mother is, but we don't know who His father is. You know what they're saying, don't you? Do you see that? Do you see this man crashing in? And then, on top of all of that, on the day of His great victory, riding into Jerusalem as we celebrate this day, not on a war horse, not with armies, not with swords, but on a donkey? What kind of story is this? On a donkey? Proclaiming peace? Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus was surrounded. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures said they will surround me like dogs, barking up at me, calling up those that pierced my hands and my feet. Those that held a sponge up. This is hundreds of years before the crucifixion. The prophet David is saying, this is what it means to redeem the world. They will surround me like the dogs of Bashan. They'll bark and howl at me. Come down if you're the Christ. Come down, you king. You called yourself a king. You saved others yourself you cannot save. And there he is. And all the angels of heaven, those armies, those chariots of fire that were there to protect Elisha, don't you think for a minute, none of you think for a minute that those same horses and chariots and angels and armies were not there at that crucifixion holding back their horses, holding back their armies. Every Every force in heaven above wanting to charge down and turn this earth into a cinder to save their king. Don't think they weren't. They were. Why? You've got to ask yourself why. On Palm Sunday of all Sundays, folks, ask yourself why. Why didn't they rescue him? The reason is so that he could heal our blindness. Strike us with sight. So we could see the grace of God. Embrace it and say, wow, my goodness, if He loves me this much, then I can love. It doesn't mean you won't be surrounded. It doesn't mean you won't have enemies coming against you. What it will mean is that you can then reach out the hand of grace. Give them water. Give them bread. Feed your enemies. Love them. Bless them. Christianity in America is sick. Do you understand that? 
not just sick, it is sick unto death. The church in this country is sick. And I'm begging you, will you trust Him? Will you? Will this church, this church, Christ, if if no other church in the country does it, will you? I'm going to do it. The rest of my life, lay down for this King, O King Eternal. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, um, we know we're in trouble in this country. I am the first to admit it. The church in this country has lost its way. And I pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. If we don't step up and stand for our enemies, we are going to lose everything. In every other part of the world, Father, the church is getting ravaged by persecution and in the midst of that, loving their enemies. Why, oh why, here where we are absolutely drowning in milk and honey, drowning in it, that the greatest voice of hatred ever known in the West is coming out of the church. God have mercy on us. I beg you, Father, change us. Create in us a clean heart, a new heart. Renew a right spirit in us on this holy day of Palm Sunday. I pledge to you, I will follow the King. Lead on, O King. And I pray that everyone here will do the same. Amen.